evening, um, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Cambridge Festival of Ideas and to tonight's event, Bridging the Gender Divide. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Manali Desai has had to pull out at the last minute and sends her apologies. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce the chair for tonight's event. Dr. Madalena Zavisha is an academic psychologist at Anglia Ruskin University. Her research interests include gender, consumer, and social psychology, and focus mainly on issues of gender, sexism, and advertising. She's co-editor of the Routledge International Handbook of Consumer Psych Psychology, review editor of Frontier's Gender, Sex and Sexuality Studies section, and a holder of prestigious grants such as the BA Leverhulme and Knowledge Transfer Partnerships, Innovation UK and European Regional Development Fund. She runs her own research consultancy, Insights, devoted to responsible advertising, and her new book, Gender, Advertising and Society, A Psychological Perspective, is due out early next year. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for this very warm uh, introduction, Mandy, and thank you very much for coming here tonight. I am absolutely honoured to be a chair of this, of this fantastic event. And my role really boils down here today to introducing our fantastic speakers. Uh, so without any further ado, I'm going to just do my job for today. Um, our first speaker uh, is going to be Victoria Bateman. Uh, and Victoria is a fascinating speaker. She is um, a fellow in economics uh, in Gonville and um, Keyes College here in Cambridge. Uh, her first book was published in 2012 and was um, tweeting on the history of markets and relationship, um, uh, its re relationship with economic growth. Um, so she's going to tap into that aspect of her knowledge uh, today. Uh, she regularly uh, comments on uh, various, uh, for example, radio stations such as uh, BBC Radio, uh, and she's a very active uh, supporter of uh, equality, gender equality specifically. Uh, she led calls for the sexual revolution um, in economics uh, and also uh, conducted some high-profile protests to highlight um, uh, the marginalization of uh, women's bodies in economics uh, and policy debates as well. So very important work. Uh, now her next book uh, is due very soon in spring um, and this book is titled, uh, it has a very sexy title, um, it says here it's titled The Sex Factor, uh, How Women Made the West Rich. Yes, so wait for it and just rush to the bookstores in order to get it uh, at the first opportunity. Now, uh, today, uh, Victoria, and I quote here, is going to talk about that it's time to see women as active creators and not passive beneficiaries. Uh, and she's, on, uh, she's going to talk about how women's freedom contributed to uh, the West, uh, Western affluence. So that's our first, uh, first speaker. Victoria, did you want to wave here so that everyone knows who you are, yes? Um, our next speaker uh, is Duncan Fisher. Um, Duncan uh, uh, is a campaigner. He has been campaigning for some 20 years, ever since uh, he's become a dad. Uh, and he's been campaigning for uh, gender equality um, and, uh, uh, and actually gave up uh, his job, international role, uh, in order to stay at home and support his children. So he has a lot of experience uh, to talk about today. Uh, now, he's the co-founder of um, Family Initiative, and also in the UK, he co-founded 
fatherhood institute. So a lot of practical work that Adanka comes with and also links to policy making because for three years uh, he also served, of, uh, served on the board of the government's uh, gender equality body uh, called the Equality uh, Equal Opportunities Commission. Uh, he was awarded OBE in 2008 uh, for his service to uh, children. Um, and uh, today he's going to talk to us, um, and I quote, um, about the, uh, how the primary carer idea is like the belief that the world is flat. It's totally convincing uh, and totally wrong. Um, so we're all ears to hear uh, how, uh, uh, how Duncan is going to debunk uh, the myth, uh, and I quote again, uh, using child psychology, men's hormones, and men's brains. Um, and our last speaker today, uh, last but not least, uh, is going to be Trofer Campbell. Now, Trofer is uh, a writer, director, uh, and performer. Uh, he is interested and works in the area of intersections uh, between race, uh, sexuality, masculinity and politics. Um, uh, he direct, uh, directs plays uh, which are show around, uh, around the country. At the tender age of 24, uh, he was awarded a place on the Regional Theatre uh, Young Directors Training Scheme. Uh, and uh, he's uh, collected quite a few awards ever since. Uh, so he's, uh, in 2005, um, he was a recipient of Jerwood Director's Award, um, and his latest art film, uh, Fetish, um, uh, has been, uh, or was uh, premiered at uh, Barbican Centre, uh, London, in January 2018, so not long, long ago at all. Uh, he's a published author, uh, so his short stories and essays have been published in various anthologies. In 2017, he was longlisted for the inaugural Spread the World Life uh, Writers Prize 2017 uh, for his forthcoming memoir um, titled uh, Batman. Uh, now, I quote now, uh, uh, Tofa is going to talk about uh, how um, there are many ways black men are on the fr uh, front line in conversations about masculinity and sexuality uh, and how um, we can dare to laugh differently. So these are our fantastic speakers uh, and without any further ado, I invite Victoria over. The floor is yours. Hello, thank you for coming this evening. I want to begin with a question. How did Britain, a tiny little island off the edge of Europe, and for so long a backwater to the rest of the globe, manage to become the most prosperous country in the world in the 19th century? It's a question that's incredibly difficult to answer, given that for millennia, not only was Britain a backwater to global civilization, so in fact was Europe a backwater to all of the dynamism and innovation that was taking place in China, in the Indus Valley, and in Mesopotamia in the Middle East. And we're not just talking about a short period of dynamism in these further eastern parts of the world, but millennia of human history. 
Growing up in Manchester, it's a question that I began to ponder from a young age. Now, I was born in 1979, and that's the year that Margaret Thatcher came to power. I was born to a long line of cotton mill workers. Whilst Manchester's best known internationally for its football, and admittedly my family are all keen Man U fans, and that meant as a child I was most definitely dressed in red rather than in pink, it's actually the industrial revolution for which Manchester really deserves fame. My grandparents and their grandparents before them all earned a living working in cotton mills either in or on the outskirts of Manchester. And growing up in the 1980s, my grandmother used to bombard me with stories of an age that was by then rapidly vanishing and, of course, of the difficult lives of my ancestors. When I was a girl, deindustrialization was setting in, and Manchester had certainly long passed its peak. Industrialization and cotton manufacture had spread overseas, so that many of the cotton mills in which my family had worked had fallen silent. The evidence, though, of earlier success was clearly visible in the landscape all around me, which was scattered with imposing red brick buildings, with chimneys that reached high into the sky, most of them, though, in a dilapidated state of disrepair, with smashed out windows and crumbling brickwork, and the occasional sound of children exploring the derelict buildings. Why Britain successfully industrialized, and with it how Europe and indeed the West became global economic leaders, were questions I therefore couldn't help but consider. But when I took to the books in search of an explanation, I found accounts almost purely of men. Of the famous male engineers, entrepreneurs, scientists, and inventors whose statues are now basking in the sunshine, or more often than not rain, in the centers of our big cities like Manchester and this one here from Birmingham. It left me wondering, where were the women who I knew from my own family history had, for example, filled the cotton mills during the time of the Industrial Revolution? Why was all of the focus on men when what seemed to me to be the greatest difference between what we might call the West and the rest, and so the very thing that could explain how the West managed to not just catch up with but overtake the rest of the world, was in women's lives, not in men's. Now, why had we ignored women? Well, the answer, of course, is that women are so often seen merely as passive beneficiaries of economic advance, as the people who should be forever grateful to their male ancestors for creating the riches that enabled women's rights to flourish in the 20th century. And in giving advice to today's poorer countries, we imagine that the economy comes first, and then women's rights and other types of social progress follow. Women's freedom is the elephant in the room when it comes to explaining how Britain got rich. Now, whilst it was by no means perfect, 
the situation facing women was far superior to much of the rest of the world, and indeed far superior compared with many poor countries today. And that, I think, gave this part of the world an advantage that was difficult to beat. So on the eve of Britain's economic rise, where did women stand? Well, it was common for women to work, and they didn't marry until their mid-twenties. So the average age that a woman got married in Britain in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s was 26. Remarkably modern when you think about it. And when women, when women did get married, they found their own partner, and they set up their own independent house separate to their parents-in-law. So rather than being absorbed into their husband's extended family. Because women had greater independence and married later in life, families were, as a result, smaller. And all of this helped to keep population growth much more in tune with the ability of the economy to support it. It prevented population growth getting out of control, driving us down to some subsistence standard of living. And that, in turn, meant higher wages that provided an incentive for businesses to mechanize, to hunt out new technologies, to invest in machinery in order to raise the productivity of their workforce. We entered a virtuous circle between higher wages and productivity growth in which high wages encouraged productivity growth and productivity growth fed back to higher wages and so on. Now, these smaller, better-off families supported at their roots by independent, free women also had more resources to invest in their children. If women are married young and have a great big tribe of children living in little more than poverty, it's very difficult to invest in your children. With these smaller families and higher wages, then you could, for example, pay for a tutor to teach your children to read and write. Or you could apprentice one or two of your children to a, a skill, to become a wig maker or a goldsmith or, or, or a, a clock mechanic or something of that kind. Now, not only could you better afford to educate your children, helping to build the skill base of the economy, you could also better afford to save. And that helped to provide more funds for investment in the economy. The fact that you lived your own independent life, rather than one arranged for you and commanded by a patriarch, also gave you an incentive to work hard and to be entrepreneurial, because what happened in your life was down to you, not to the patriarch in your family, not to your parents. And so this, I argue in my book, created a hard-working entrepreneurial spirit in Britain. And finally, women's freedom aided democracy. Now, where families are patriarchal, we're taught to respect authority and to keep our mouths shut. Status trumps merit. Rather than speaking up, we're told to shut up. Where families are more consensual, though, where men and women are equal and where young people are allowed a voice, we become socialized into democratic norms from an early age. We get used to having a say, 
to forming an opinion through discussion and debate and to holding others to account, to challenging others, including our elders and including other people of other genders. So undemocratic political institutions, autocracy, authoritarianism, when you think about it, are rooted in similar structures within the home. Democracy is rooted in equality within the home. Of course, rather conveniently, patriarchy, by giving everyday men some power within the home, placates those who might otherwise rise up and challenge the undemocratic rulers. So once we open our eyes to the experiences of women, rather than focusing purely on men, there's an obvious candidate for why the West not only caught up with, but overtook the rest of the world after millennia of being behind, millennia of being a backwater. Women's freedom had five big effects on the economy. It boosted wages, it boosted the skill base, it boosted saving and investment, it encouraged an entrepreneurial spirit, and it helped to produce a more democratic and capable state. In other words, all of the things that are needed for economic advance. If the West wants to stay ahead today, then that's worth remembering, particularly at a time when it's in some ways moving backwards when it comes to women's rights. Now, women's freedom isn't only relevant to thinking about how the West got rich and how it can further build on that today. It's also relevant to understanding why, in recent years, inequality has gone up and wages have stagnated in this part of the world. In many poorer countries today, women have very different lives to those of British women on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. They're often married young, sometimes as teenagers, and quite frequently to older men, and have very little independence and very little control over their bodies. And this creates a very different sort of equilibrium, one of bigger families, poorer families, faster population growth, population growth that holds back wage growth and produces a model of production that's based on exploiting cheap labor as opposed to investing in machinery and technology, creating productivity growth that feeds back to improve wages. So we can think of two equilibria, one founded on women's freedom, a high wage, high productivity equilibria, and an opposite kind, one founded on a lack of freedom for women that results in low wages and an economy with relatively low productivity growth. Now these two equilibria were until recently quite separate. But since the 1970s, of course, the world has gone global. The world has globalized. And as a result, these two equilibria have collided. And the low freedom, low wage, low productivity equilibria out there in poorer parts of the world has acted to disturb the equilibria that we're in, founded on women's freedom here in a country like Britain. So what we've been left with is increasing competition with cheap labor overseas, putting downward pressure on wage growth and with it disturbing businesses' incentive to have a higher investment, faster productivity growth model of expansion. 
So the results being wage stagnation in parts of the labour force that compete with cheap labour overseas and with it rising inequality. Now, the obvious solution to the collision of these two equilibria would be to resist globalisation. And that's, of course, the direction we now seem to be heading in, mentioning um, here Brexit and Trump, of, of, of course. But instead, I'd suggest a very different solution, and that is ensuring that more women globally have control over their lives and control over their bodies, so that the world more generally can enter the kind of equilibrium that Britain began to enter on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. If politicians, intellectuals, and economists wonder why their country is poor, all they need to do is to look at the lives of their wives and their daughters. If they do, it won't only help them, it will help us too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to follow that by looking at the other side of the coin, which is men and caring for children. I'll let you ponder that image while I speak. I only have one picture um, and see if you can spot anything odd about it. So I was considering as I was coming here, I, I live in South Wales, so I came a long way, um, how I would start this. And I was sitting on the London Underground between uh, Paddington and Liverpool Street, thinking, what am I going to say first? And I looked up, and there was an advertisement, and it said, Mum knows best. <laughs> I thought, that's it. I will start with what I see on the way here. So what does that mean, Mum knows best? We all know the phrase. I was talking recently to the father of a child who has diabetes. She's about nine. And she, they, uh, he was telling me about the online networks, the parents of children with diabetes. There are networks of parents of children with every kind of illness, as you can imagine. And there is a parents group uh, about, about diabetes on Facebook, and he's a member of it. But he was describing to me how when mothers and fathers get together in these groups, there is a dynamic that starts to happen, which is that mum knows best. Um, so there's this kind of just gradual drift towards when mothers on the network speak, they have more authority than the fathers. And the fathers become a little bit nervous about looking <coughs> stupid. So what they do is they go and form their own group. Dads. Now they don't want to leave out, they don't want to lose the authority and the knowledge of the mothers, so they have both, and they're in both groups and they have so they they bond in the father's group and uh, can sort of expose their vulnerability a little bit more and then they can go back to the mums when they want to so th this dynamic is is uh, exists in all of these sort of uh, un under the radar a big image an iconic image of european civilization is the nativity scene you've all had christmas cards with mary holding the baby and what does Joseph do? Does anyone actually ever notice Joseph? <laughs> Sometimes he's black, he's painted in the dark in the background. Sometimes he's working, absolutely. He's a dad, he's a working dad. Um, but very rarely is he doing what's in this image. Now this is a 15th century image. It's in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, as it happens. And 
about three years ago, someone got a, got a Christmas card with this picture on it. It was so impressed, sent it to me, sent their own Christmas card to me. You see what I mean? They just cut, cut out and put Dear Duncan. Uh, and what's amazing is Mary is reading. There is, there, there's something between her ears, right? She's actually doing something intellectual. And he is gazing at the baby and just loving the baby. Now, that is incredibly unusual. It's the only image I've seen. And, and it was on a Christmas card. But has anyone here ever received a Christmas card in which Joseph is cuddling the baby? You have. Two here. Fantastic. I will come and find out what card it was. I need to know. Maybe it's what I sent you, because I send lots of cards. I make my own Christmas cards with Joseph. So the idea, the idea that is ubiquitous is, the, is that mothers are primary. They're primary carers. That's the, the phrase we have. And I'm going to give you just a few random examples, because once you start seeing it, you can see it everywhere. Let's take workplace, workplaces where work, there's a, there is a, an ubiquitous assumption that when a baby arrives, men will kind of continue to work and women won't. Okay? And of course, that creates, even when they're even mild, years before they become parents, there's that, well, they might become mothers and therefore they might compromise work. Whereas there's no expectation that fathers would do that. And that creates uh, discrimination, that, that drives discrimination in the workplaces. One particular thing in the UK which I really get going about is uh, parental leave, shared parental leave. So in the, we have a system whereby parents can share their parental leave. The uptake in the UK is 2%. So that is 2% of the eligible parents, which are not 100% of parents. 2% share the leave, 98% don't. Now compare that with Iceland. 91% of parents in Iceland share, okay? 86% share in Quebec, in, in uh, Canada, and 63% share in Portugal, okay? So they're the, 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 their examples. In the UK, it's 2%. Now, what's going on? I, I recently wrote a piece for The, the, for the Guardian, and I, I analysed this, and I took a woman... Um, on the average wage, which is £27,000. And I worked out how much the state pays her in maternity leave and parental leave. And the answer is £7,449. Take a man on 27000 and what does the state pay him? And the answer is 282 Okay, So the state pays women 26 times more than men to be mothers. And that is why it's 2%. Okay, why would you? Why would you do that? It's, there's one company who has, who has bucked the trend, Aviva, and they decided that they were going to uh, make it equal, make it absolutely equal. But that involves paying men out of the company coffers up to the £7,449 mark that the state pays women. That is not a reasonable thing to ask companies to do. Pay men through the nose for being fathers. So it's complicated. Another thing that I work on is internationally. I do a lot of work internationally, and I'm currently taking on the UNICEF and the World Health Organization, and it's going to kill me, okay? 
Um, but they have, they really don't know what to do with the father fatherhood. They, they're, they're completely conflicted about it. But the main model they have is that the role, they do talk about fathers, but the role of the father is to support the mother to be the mother. Okay? So there's a mother-baby bond, and that's very sacred, and dad is the helper. Okay? He's got to be a good boy, and there's lots of advice internationally about what he should and should not do. It's incredibly entertaining uh, as a father to be told so many things by these wise people in Geneva and New York. So, basically, the picture I'm trying to, to, to draw for you is that motherhood is basically seen as superior to fatherhood. The primary carer, mums know best. And that creates an enormous social pressure on every woman who becomes a mother to be primary. And the result of that is guilt. Big time guilt. And any of you who are mothers, when you try to, when women separate from that and start saying, I want to be as economically active as my, my partner, the, the father, that creates the guilt. And it's a driver of inequality uh, in our society, which, which runs all the way through. Anne-Marie Slaughter is a, a big-time big CEO woman in America. And she said that the most difficult thing for her in her career was to let go and let her husband be a real expert. She said she could hardly bear it when the child was ill or sick and instinctively sought his help instead of hers. Okay? Now... I've had that experience, and, and uh, that's, I call it, what's one of the tests when I'm working with parents is, who does the baby, go, who does the child go when the child is hurt, yeah? In my family, it's, it's pretty much equal, actually, um, but, but there's one, there was one difference when they were small. When they were genuinely hurt, it was 50-50, and when they were making it up, it was, m it was my wife. They went to her, because I, I couldn't be doing with it. I could tell. And I was just simply not sympathetic. So if I knew, if they ran off to her immediately, I knew, oh, that's it, they're, not, they're making it up. <laughs> <coughs> so, so now I'm going to, I, I said that I said in the introduction we do a bit of debunking. So I'm going to just run through some biology and psychology. The greatest psychologist who's looked at this is professor of psychology at this wonderful university, Michael Lamb. And I'm glad he's not here, I'll tell you. <laughs> because I was really nervous he might turn up, and that would have totally undermined me. Anyway, he has studied it for 40 years, and he has found that the, the attachments that children form with parents are multiple. There is not a single primary attachment. There is uh, children bond with the adults in their lives during the, the first year in, at the same time and each attachment is unique and different from the others. One is not the model for another. There is such a thing as a primary care in a, so a primary care in a social sense, in that in our society, most mothers do most of the care. Yeah? And so they're primary in that sense, but that's social, that's not psychological. So the, there's not a psychological primary care. When a man holds a baby, when a, a, a newborn, particularly skin to skin, I don't know, are there fathers here who've done that? 
And do you, has anyone had butterflies in the stomach when that happens? Which is the love hormone, oxytocin. It's what happens when you kiss the first boyfriend or girlfriend when you're a teenager. Um, and it's, it's, it's oxytocin. And men's hormones re respond very much like women's do. Uh, the, the oxytocin goes up, testosterone drops down, even prolactin, which is commonly associated with breastfeeding, goes up in men as well when they, when they cuddle a baby. And, then, and, and in the recent years, they've looked at neuroscience and looking at brain patterns. And there they found that as fathers cuddle their babies, the, 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 the patterns in their brains start to respond uh, and they learn patterns of care. They learn their sort of, uh, they learn the instinctive, um, there's an uh, instinctive feeling for what the child uh, is, uh, the baby is experiencing. And you can sort of empathize with it. Am I okay? Oh, I'm, it's because I put my paper on, isn't it? I knew I'd mess this up. And they, they, in Israel, they did a very fascinating experiment. They took three groups of fathers, the, the full-time working dad, and they looked at his brain when he was looking after children, the sort of 50-50 hands-on totally total dad, who is sort of sharing it with the mother, and then the 100% dad, the gay dads. Uh, and they looked at dads who were, there, were no, there was no mother at all involved, right? They were the absolutely, uh, the, they weren't sharing it, so they were doing it themselves. <laughs> and they looked at the brain patterns in each of these, and the more that the fathers care, the more their brain patterns are changing. And it is just like a line. The more you do it, the more your brain changes. And the fascinating thing is that, that those brain changes are permanent, so those fathers go on to be more doting grandfathers, for example. Um, but also, even more fascinating, and this is results coming out right now, um, they're now looking at the social abilities of the children uh, in those relationships, and they find that the more the father's brain changes, the greater the social skills and, uh, and abilities of the child four years later. So there's a correlation between the man's, the father's brain, and the child's behavior four years later. So what, what the psychologists are saying and what the, the, the biologists are saying is that there is a really intimate connection between babies and mothers and fathers. It is not individuals in competition with each other. F babies are born into what we call, that scientists call, a community of care. They're born into these multiple attachments. And it's interesting to note, when you're looking at patriarchy, how careful patriarchal structures are to separate men from babies. And it's something that I hadn't really noticed until I'd looked at the science. But actually, there are quite incredible uh, lengths to which some society goes to make sure that women are confined so that the father does not cuddle the baby. Because what triggers all this, all this sort of uh, this revolution, if you like, is cuddling the baby, yeah? The physical contact. When you do it, that's what triggers it. And it's a one-way street when you start doing it. And patriarchy doesn't like that. This undermines patriarchy. So the last thing I'm going to say is just share with you some of the things. That, what, do we, what do we do about this? Um, and I've spent the last 20 years asking myself that question. 
sometimes thinking I might just about have got it right, but most of the time thinking I'm probably hopelessly wrong. But I can't really help it. I, I feel I have to do something. Um, if you look uh, on social media and you look at videos, you'll find there are that the video of the father bonding with the baby or a young child, they're enormously popular. They go viral. It's crazy. There are tens and hundreds of millions of people who will watch a dad plaiting his daughter's hair. Yeah? <laughs> and that's got 35 million views. You think, what? what what's this all about? It's crazy. Um, but there are a whole series of videos that do that. And what that's doing is it's, that is driven by men communicating to other men. I'm close to my daughter, and this is really good fun. Yeah? And that's what's going on. There is a thing going on below the radar screen. It's not in the mainstream media. It's not in the adverts on the underground that I saw today. It's not there, but it is in there. And, that's, and men are communicating to other men. And I want to encourage... So what part of my work is to encourage that, to create online networks, particularly in patriarchal countries where there are lots of men who want to be close to their children and who find it very difficult. So that's one of the things that we're doing, is creating those and, and a sort of celebratory uh, atmosphere in those, saying, you know, aspirational. There's a lot of work to do in the UK on family services, take, take materni maternity services when the baby is born. I'm working at the moment on neonatal services where the baby is very sick. Um, there is a... Uh, a wonderful forum um, that is promoted to neonatal parents. It's just for mothers. There's no forum for fathers of sick babies. Um, and so we're trying to fix that. Um, so those sort of integrating into services. And then, of course, there's the whole workplace culture, which I've been talking about. And I do lots of work in companies trying to get them to think about the culture, trying to think of the subliminal ways in which they communicate to men that it's risky to ask for to be treated equally or to be treat or to be allowed to take time off work for the baby. And then there's the leave entitlements. And the problem with leave entitlements, it's a policy issue. And at the moment, because of the political situation which we all know about, there is no debate about anything in policy at the moment in the UK at all. So that is absolutely on the on the back burner for a while until we until we reactivate. So thank you very much. That's my thing. And enjoy, uh, enjoy this unusual thing. And it, it is in the Fitzwilliam Museum. Hi, everybody. Hello. <coughs> so my voice is a little <coughs> under par because I'm uh, <coughs> just uh, recovering from the flu. So you'll all have something to uh, excuse yourself from whatever your life is up to over the next few weeks. And you'll have to blame me because you'll come down with it. It's pretty horrible. Um, <laughs> So anyway, but I, I was just saying um, this morning, I got up thinking, if I can get up, I can chill and uh, continue um, this presentation today, then I'll come along. And so here I am. So I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm kind of, um, I'm obsessed by lots of different things. Um, so I was very happy to come here to talk about this particular subject from my perspective. Um, and one of the things I'm obsessed with is, is kind of how I, as a man, kind of operate in the world and this whole idea of what masculinity is. And also, I've kind of also been hearing a lot about this thing called toxic mas masculinity, and which kind of makes you think that you have to make an excuse for yourself if you're, if you're a man in some way, you know. And so um, it's not my experience, because um, I have a 
a great love of my masculinity. Um, and I don't particularly want to make any excuses for myself. Um, so I thought I'd sort of talk about something that was kind of personal, really, and, and just kind of share some thoughts um, and observations based on what I've kind of come across and, and some um, um, thoughts and feelings around what I think might be some solutions around what people call toxic masculinity. So um, I make films, um, and I also make theatre and I perform, um, so I kind of borrowed a film title from Russia with Love, which is um, one of the uh, emblematic movies from somebody who has, uh, from the 1960s, been one of our most toxic male uh, icons. Um, and I'm calling this From Black Masculinity with Love. <coughs> um, one of the things I noticed um, recently is that black men, particularly, are not supposed to be intimate in any way. And uh, I noticed that uh, the actor Ryan Coogler, sorry, the actor Michael B. Jordan and the director Ryan Coogler um, were photographed by Vanity Fair, I think it was in 2015, uh, and this picture where, you know, uh, Michael is caressing the director's head. Um, <coughs> um, and um, a lot of reaction, a lot of negative reaction was made in relation to this. People, particularly in the black communities, particularly online, um, and where, as Duncan said, there's a lot of a lot of us talking to each other, um, were very, very kind of appalled by this depiction of these two incredibly talented young men being shown in such an intimate way. Um, and then only this year, um, the, the um, baseball players, Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Atlantic Braves, I know nothing about baseball, by the way, um, <laughs> but um, were in a dugout caressing each other. Um, and the, the actual gif is much better because they're actually kind of you know, stroke one stroke in the other's head. And, and Twitter went off. It went completely off. I mean, it went crazy. There were phrases like, get a room, and I'm sorry, but that was weird and awkward. I don't want to go gay bash, but these two need to get a room. This is some X-rated stuff, was one of the people. And then, the, and then I think my favorite um, was, I'll go back to that in a minute. This is just wrong. If you need pampering, Mr. Acuna, go home and see your mum. This would never be right in baseball, football, and definitely not hockey. You two need to grow a pair and act like men or get a room. I hope I never see this again. There is no crying in baseball. And just because I thought I'd be talking to a lot of people who weren't black in the room, I offered, um, offered this as well, which was the um, picture of um, uh, Chris Myers and Jack Lawhas hug after they'd won gold during the Olympics. Um, and how the Daily Mail um, went off again, saying that this was a disgusting display and that they should have just patted each other on the back like the Chinese team did. <laughs> I kind of wondered, as um, I watched the reaction and read the reaction to these pictures, about the way in which we uh, responded to both these images and how we reflect on how we police um, in a very, very, very ardent way, men ourselves, that is, um, uh, the affection or the um, performance of masculinity that has some, somehow associated with something that's feminine or soft or intimate, particularly between ourselves, and that we ourselves are kind of policing ourselves out of the possibilities of whatever our, our humanity is, and we are kind of teaching our younger selves, not to express the full extent of our own humanity. Even today, I was reading about um, 
um, a young guy who, who was painting his nails, a young boy who was painting his nails and, and being his five-year-old. He'd gone to school and when his mum picked him up, um, he was basically in tears because all the other lads and lasses at school had kind of taken a piss out of him um, and he didn't want to paint his nails anymore. And this is a kid who's, you know, into football and into normal, what we call normal boy stuff and also liked painting his nails. So, um, so we're constantly in a situation where we find it difficult for men to stray outside a given set of codes about how they behave with each other. Uh, disapproval of male intimacy, public displays of affection, private displays of affection uh, between lovers or friends is prohibited. But that's something that kind of affects all of us, particularly men. Um, <coughs> and uh, particularly um, in areas where intimate contact is needed, like sports, for example. Um, you go online and you see these kind of uh, multiple um, compilations of guys kissing on a football field. Um, and it sort of fetishizes something odd and strange. That's okay. But I wanted to go a bit deeper than that because I wanted to talk about the situation for black men because the notion of just being, of being labeled gay, a pussy, a fag or a girl, um, all obviously homophobic and sexist notions um, points towards the way in which we, black men, are policed by societies and our ideas, in, by our ideas of blackness itself. Um, <clears throat> I sort of did a little bit of a thing on the internet and I kind of gathered some images and I just thought about the ways in which I've experienced personally and those of my peers and my younger people, younger people younger than me, my <coughs> have um, experienced the kind of narrow lanes in which we should keep ourselves as black men. So in wider society, I think this relates to the kind of representations and expressions of our masculinity and what's allowed and what's disallowed. And some of the cliches which abound and have an effect, a real effect institutionally on the lives of those of us who are black. For example, we're considered to be low of, <coughs> of less intelligence and low educated. We're at Cambridge University and, and one of the arguments about the low, the low rate of uh, attendance of people of colour at institutions like Cambridge and other higher institutions is because we just don't get the grades or we were not motivated enough. Um, uh, nothing to do with the way in which institutions themselves operate. That we're naturally more violent. That we're less sensitive and harder. And by extension, less moral. That we're sexually prolific and oversexed. That our our genitals are bigger and more powerful. <clears throat> that we're good at sports, naturally. That we don't have to train. I remember when I was younger, um, reading about uh, Linford Christie. Well, actually, no, it was in the 90s when they did a documentary about Linford Christie, and they talked about um, his lunchbox. Um, and, the, you know, ha-ha, snigger, snigger. Yeah, big deal, um, because of the way he ran. Um, but they also talked about the fact that that's the reason why he was so powerful in sports. Nothing to do with the fact he trained morning, noon, and night to get the medals. So that we also have natural athletic builds. We come out of the womb, wiry, <laughs> and we end up, when you get to my age, all big and muscly. That we're somehow on the download, that we're closeted in terms of our sexualities, and that we're spreading HIV and AIDS. That we're naturally predisposed to criminality, that we like rap, 
R&B and grime only. That's it. And then we're so cool. And then we police ourselves by saying things like, to be very well spoken is to be white. I'm educated, man. I often got that. I often got that, obviously, working in the theatre. It's one of the biggest things. Uh, we call it code switching also in terms of, or, or recalibrating in terms of the kind of class and racial kind of a <coughs> milieu we might be in. But to be able to work within white institutions, within white jobs, doctors, lawyers, the sciences, the politics, political arena, the arts, is to be white. Uh, that we were <coughs> to be a nerd, as I said, is white. To be middle class is white. To be in interracial relationships with a white partner, particularly, is, like, is to like white people more. To be queer is to be white or Western. And there's this idea that there is some kind of good black man and bad black man. The good black man is the conformist black man, the guy in the suit, the guy who does all the right things that a white man might do, um, including being a good father. Because we are absent fathers, after all. Um, and the bad black man is obviously the, the, the bad black man is the person who also conforms to whiteness in some ways. Because he is not performing the experienced society roles, the, experience, the expected society roles of a black man. Uh, this in turn becomes problematic um, for all of us who are people of colour in the way that we are in a sort of lose-lose situation. In my personal experience, <clears throat> up until this day, even into my middle age, um, is the generic experience of every black person, male black person. I call it the handbag. Um, it's the w I have it probably every day, if not every other day. It's when I'm approaching uh, a seat on the tube or I'm walking down the local high street, um, or even in one case, I'm walking past a car and someone locked their car door. Um, but the handbag is grabbed, or unconsciously there's a checking of the contents of the handbag by the woman. Um, in one case, I had a woman stop in front of me, check her phone, look up and look out, activate her camera phone, turn it round, and make sure that I passed her, just by walking behind her. <clears throat> There's also the experience of being followed around Sainsbury's boots, Tesco's, and Waitrose, not by the paparazzi. And then there's the two rather dramatic experiences I had by being stopped by armed police by driving. I worked in television, so I used to drive um, big cars. I, don't, I ride cycles mostly now, because I'm a good black man. Um, and um, <clears throat> I was stopped, being stopped by armed police, both in Westminster, here in, there in London, on the South Bank, and also in um, Glendale in Los Angeles. Um, the, the second one, obviously, being more... Um, frightening for me because the police in the Americas we know have been very trigger happy lately in relation to uh, driving while black. Um, but the one in Westminster uh, was very odd because it ha hadn't happened to me for like 20 years um, where I'd been stopped because I fit, literally because I fit the description. So, this is, these, so these are very different kinds of experience of my masculinity and the masculinity of my peers. <coughs> that kind of work towards kind of separation, work towards kind of aggression, work towards, in some ways, responses that are not necessarily uh, ones 
which enhance our relationships with women. What are solutions? Well, I'm inspired by um, the black gay poet um, Joseph Bean, who coined the phrase, black men loving black men is the revolutionary act, which um, was then kind of popularized in the black and gay communities uh, through a film by Marlon Riggs called Tongues Untied. And although it's like a nice, neat statement, in some ways, and it's also, I was thinking about this and thinking, well, you know, this is not necessarily new because I think, you know, 50 years ago they had the hippie generation and they've also, you know, all you need is love and all this sort of stuff. But when you look at it in relation to the way in which things are being played out here in the UK and the US, the high proportion of mental illness, um, the over, excuse me, the over-representation of black men in prisons, the fact that we are more subject, particularly if you're aged between 16 and 21, to being subject to um, knife crime, the sort of the exclusion of black people in representation in the media, um, the absentee father situation, even though that's not necessarily uh, a, a, as, as, as large as people think, but, and also what happens in employment in terms of even if you graduated from Cambridge, even if you graduated from the University of Sussex, from where I come from, you are less likely to get a high-paid job than your white peers, male and female. Um, so <clears throat> the solutions to how we ourselves as black men deal with each other, police each other, have to involve somehow love. Because if there's a way in which we can, if you like, soften the edges that <coughs> separate us, I'm hoping that that might be a way in which we can also find better ways of relating to the women in our lives. I explore some of these um, themes in my latest film, Fetish, um, where I look at the whole way in which the surface of the black male body particularly, its vulnerability and its strength, are played out in the public arena. Uh, <clears throat> So why love? Because I think it goes beyond <coughs> the kind of the trap, the prison of uh, perception, which spelt wrong, expectation, which also spelt wrong. It was very fast this <laughs> afternoon, and representation, spelt right, <laughs> um, which has been kind of highlighted by a guy called uh, Matthew Jones, saying that, that, that you know black masculinity is defined with a D E I D E. And in three overarching categories. You get your spell check right, Campbell. Um, but um, the point being is that this is a, I see these kinds of things as a prison, really, how we're perceived, how we're expected to behave, and how we then are represented in wider society. And um, I think if there's a way in which we can, through <coughs> allowing ourselves to be seen differently, so that images like the one I searched, the ones I showed you at the beginning, um, are less kind of... Know, rare and less kind of weird, if we allow those sort of things to become more commonplace in our actual everyday lives, perhaps we can allow for something that's different in terms of this prison. We can kind of break out of it. The, the thing that I'm like really encouraged by is, is, the, is, the, is the next generation, really. Um, um, I think, as, as Duncan was saying, there's, there's, kind of a, there's a whole kind of big conversation that goes on in the... Uh, in, in, in the 
interweb. Um, um, and it kind of reflects in some of the <coughs> some of the web series that you see and, and some of the kind of uh, vlogging that you see where black men particularly are thinking differently about how they exist in society. Um, and I was particularly inspired by this, this, this uh, quote by Bell Hooks, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves, and others that action, that action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. Um, and as I said, the younger generation are thinking differently about this. And I think for me, to love is political. You know, to have friendships that are meaningful, that are sustained, that we sustain through life, that we create allies, male and female, non-binary, trans, that go beyond the idea that we should hate each other. And for black men to do that, it actually really is a revolutionary act. Because even though I'm <coughs> UK born and bred, but there was a period in my life, particularly in my teens, where the idea of, um, and in some time into my 20s, where the idea of my masculinity had to be borne out through fighting. Um, and I also got a lot of pride and a lot of like uh, a lot of um, a lot of a lot of kind of um, status by kind of being a trained fighter when I was younger, um, which you know it's great to have had, but it's not necessarily the way forward. What I found is that amongst the communities I'm I'm involved in, when I work through uh, some of the anger and some of the upset and some of the disappointments and some of the fear and some of the vulnerabilities that I feel with my male friends and lovers and, and, and their friends and people in marriages and whatever it is, when we talk to each other, when we bring each other together, we have much more sustained relationships with all the people in our lives, in, including the women in our lives. So um, I mentioned some of the younger people. So one of the things I liked was that young thug who got married in his uh, an 18th century wedding dress recently. Um, I know people deride people like Jaden Smith, but the, the idea is that <coughs> these kind of images that anybody between you know, 10 and 30 is absorbing on the net are much more impactful than, can be as, as impactful as the kind of stereotypes of thuggery and sort of victimhood that we're seeing everywhere else. And other people I know, uh, there's, a, there's a web series called Giants, which I think is really interesting, which kind of explores the whole kind of notion of masculinity in very different kinds of ways in terms of that person's particular social circle where people are straight, gay, trans, non-binary, where relationships are kind of sustained through commune as opposed to through conflict. <coughs> Lastly, I want to just uh, share Audre Lorde's quote. For black women, as well as black men, it is axiomatic that if we do not define ourselves for ourselves, we will be defined by others for their use and our detriment. And I guess that's kind of my life work, really, to try and find different kinds of ways of understanding why we're here and how to do things. Ways that kind of shift away from the patriarchy of dominance and competition and status. And ways that move more towards notions of difficult love, of unknown solutions. And that's not just with each other, but it's also with our children too, I think, in some ways. It's something that kind of can hopefully reveal different kinds of paradigms because we don't have the answer. 
That's no, none of us have the answer. And I think, uh, as an artist, that question, how do we love better in order to achieve more for all of us, is something that I kind of wanted to uh, open up here. And hopefully, you'll help me with some of the solutions. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Um, I think there are two big issues right now. And the first is that clearly we don't have equality in the marketplace, in the labor market, for example. And that's clearly not possible until we have equality in the home. But it's difficult to have equality in the home if you don't have equality in the marketplace. Because, of course, if women are paid less and, and are less likely to be in top positions, then they are more likely to become the carers within the home. So, um, so that um, trying to break out of that, um, that difficulty is, uh, um, is not easy. Um, and I think the second problem is that um, in the past 100 years, as women, we've made great progress in terms of our ability to use our brains as we wish. Um, but I think there are still big restrictions from society and from the state on our ability to use our bodies as we wish. And this is relevant in terms of our reproductive rights as women. So um, access to birth control is an, a growing problem, actually, even within the UK. There was a recent BBC News article looking at how women within the UK find it increasingly difficult to access um, birth control services. Obviously, in Trump America, uh, globally, um, the global gag rule from Trump America, which is um, defunding organizations that provide birth control to some of the world's poorest women. And then also something I'm particularly interested in, women who monetize their bodies, you know, whether as glamour models, as grid girls, as sex workers. Um, these women, I think, are, um, are perfectly entitled to do that. As far as I'm concerned, there's one thing that should be at the root of feminism, and that is my body, my choice. And I do think that certain strands of feminism itself have very strong views when it comes to what women should and shouldn't be doing with their bodies. And so I think in terms of current day fights, you have the issue of inequality of care within the home and how that feeds into the labor market. But I do think there is this battle going on between women themselves um, that is restricting what we can do as women with our own bodies. And I think that is frightening. Duncan? Mm. <laughs> um, I, th I think that it's such a difficult question. That's um, why I coined it. I know. <laughs> um, I think I, I can point to one of the things that I think is key. Um, in, you know, there's a, there's a, a huge debate about gender equality at the moment, um, and it's an explosion uh, of, of acti action and activity and debate which is fantastic, um, but if you look at it, uh, the part of it is very much better developed than the other. So there's a, there's a lot of discussion about women's positions. There's much, much less debate about the, the, uh, the caring economy. So who cares? There's a lot about who earns, who creates, who rules, um, but we, we haven't really gone to who cares. 
we kind of left that. It's like it's too sensitive. I don't know what it is, but mm. I'll give you an example. I was at the Women, Women Deliver conference, which is the big gender equality bash every three years. Massive, 5,000 people. And I went there to, I was invited to speak on men as carers. And so I went to my little session and 40 people came and it was in a nice little room and we spoke and it was all terribly friendly. This was a conference of 5,000 people. Later that afternoon, they ran an event called Powerful Men. Um, and they put that on the main stage. Okay, they had some famous men. <laughs> but there were about 3,000 people there and I was mortified. <laughs> but I thought, no, this is not just a personal thing. But there, was a, there is no debate. There's no, there's no discussion about who cares. And so long as we leave caring to women, which is what we do, when we're stuck. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right about that the it's two sides of a coin. You can't do one without the other. But we have to do an awful lot more mm -hmm. about who cares for children. Who cares for elderly relatives? Mm -hmm. We've got to deal with We've got to go into the home mm -hmm. and look at it there. But we haven't done that yet. We're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's one. There's so many barriers, mm -hmm. but that's one of them. Terrific. Yeah, I mean, I'd, excuse me, I'd agree. I think I always go, I always, I have a sort of knee-jerk reaction. I always go back to capitalism sucks, you know. I mean, I go back to the idea that we, as long as we have a frame, as long as we have what we do frame, <coughs> framed within the idea of competition and those people <coughs> who are more competitive are rewarded, we are always going to be in a situation where those people who are less rewarded will be considered less valuable. <clears throat> so when it comes to the work in the environment, I work in the arts, and uh, not so much in film, but definitely in theatre. There's a lot more women in positions of uh, either power or influence, or just working. And one of the reasons <coughs> is because in the arts we're mostly freelancers, and there's a and even within those pay jobs, there's a greater understanding of childcare, um, both for men and for women. And for people to, women in positions of leadership to be able to leave at certain times of the day, or if it's a man in certain, times, in certain instances. I think that's, so child, talking about care, I'm totally on, on that. So child, child care is really expensive in this country. Um, it's impossible if you don't um, earn over a certain amount, and, or if both partners, if there are both partners, um, are, are earning a certain amount. Um, and we don't value we just don't value or understand what that means because we're not interested in working away from this competitive model which you have to earn more, you have to kind of excel in certain kinds of ways in order to be, have a certain kind of status. The other thing is, I would say, is that we have to get away from this thing that um, we're obsessed with. I think in terms of people of colour, there's something that happens as well, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but representation is an equality. You know, seeing... Uh, women in positions of power doesn't mean to say that all women are equal. It's just as much as seeing, you know, a black James Bond doesn't mean to say, you know, all of a sudden, or a, or a President Obama, all of a sudden race is over. We have to get to the nitty-gritty of what actually equality is. And it means that we have to be braver with legislation, locally and nationally. We have to be braver in terms of who those sort of activists are interested in to demand more. And I'm sort of in favour of you know, in the same way that we had the Civil Rights Act in 1965 in America, and, and now we have legislation around 
uh, equality here and there. I'm in favour of kind of <coughs> making bolder statements in terms of the way in which we legislate for equal pay, for example. Um, in terms of the way we legislate in relation to hours worked, for example. I, have no, I, don't, I haven't got any prescription, but I, I've seen it working in the arts in ways which I'm not seeing in, in other industries, not perfectly. So I think, yeah, those are the areas that, I'm, from my experience, I've seen. Great, thank you. Now we have some time for questions from the audience. Uh, so we're very curious. The gentleman in the uh, mustardy top, yeah? I personally feel, I mean, I'll just chip in because um, uh, I can talk about this. I'm, I always talk about, I can never talk about one, it's, for me it's an intersectional conversation. So, you know, <coughs> my mother, uh, excuse me, was a cleaner. Uh, she wasn't very well educated. She was unfortunately quite abused as she, uh, when she was younger and she had a, several abusive relationships. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and then when she was trying to be promoted into management, there were people who were promoted above her for lots of different reasons. Um, my uh, sister is a nurse um, and has taken a lot of time to become a staff nurse. And nursing is one of the kind of professions that, you, that women can excel in. <coughs> but a lot of male uh, nurses also excel above their female counterparts. And we wonder why that is. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> in terms of race, similar things are happening where black talent is being held back, not because they haven't got the talent, because the mechanisms of understanding uh, and recognising that talent don't exist within organisations. So point blank, I believe in positive discrimination. I think it's a blunt instrument. It's not the solution. It's a blunt instrument that should go alongside all the other kinds of ways in which we're trying to affect change. And I, I also understand the argument of tokenism. I, if I'm a woman, I can't talk my own, but if I'm a black person, do I want to be seen as a tokenistic kind of appointment? I'd rather be appointed outside. Of, but <coughs> that should happen as well. <laughs> you know, that should happen as well. And there's always going to be, and there will be, and it is at this moment, if you scan social media, there's always going to be some kind of kickback on that. But we have to see, we have to see that change because it, it's not anything to do with uh, the talent pool. Mm -hmm. Okay, other questions? I think that's such an important point, and I think I, I, I will admit, compared with Toffer, I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical of the state, and I think this is a good reason why. 
Um, over the 20th century, there has been a great expansion in the size of the state in Western economies. And we can look back on that and we can be positive about it. We can see many positives that have come from it. But actually, uh, uh, the, the, the welfare state in particular, things like the way schools work, um, all of that has been constructed on the basis that women are dependents. Um, so when it comes to women's pension rights, for example, um, those are more limited than, than men's. Um, when it comes to um, the provision of welfare for single mums, that was for a long time overlooked and the state had a view that they, uh, well, a, a very um, moralistic view that they don't want to be supporting single mums. Um, Bev Ridge, who of course um, was the founder of the British welfare state, had a view that women have too important a role to do within their homes, creating a, a British race that goes out into the world and civilizes the world. Uh, too important a role doing that to, um, to, um, to be expected to go into the, into the workplace. So I think in general the welfare state has been created on the back of a, a male breadwinner model of the world, um, and also the way that we have constructed our education system has been on the basis that women are work no more than part-time, can be available to drop children off at school at nine o'clock and then pick them up at three o'clock in the afternoon whilst their husbands are still busy at work. Um, so uh, you look at, for example, recent welfare changes, changes in universal credit that have resulted in benefits now being paid into the highest income earner, their account, their bank account in the household. Um, of course, typically the highest income earner is the man, and so now benefits are being channeled into the male bank account, which is, of course, increasing uh, the bargaining power of men within the home and locking women out of access to financial resources. So I think when we look at state interventions and the way we construct, whether it's the education system, the elderly care system, the welfare state, I think the state in general adopts the, um, the sexism within society. And I, I, th I think there's a limit to how much we can always see the state as a solution. Other questions? I saw quite a few hands up earlier. Uh, gentleman over there.
Perhaps I should begin with some statistics. More, more than 60% um, of illiterate people in the world are women. The global gender wage gap is 24%. Now, that's just comparing women who work with men who work. There are lots of women who don't work. That means if we look at the earnings gap between men and women, it's closer to 50%. Of all the landowners in the world, only one in five are women, and of all the politicians and lawmakers, less than a quarter um, are women. Um, here in uh, the UK, we have a wage gap of 18%. No more than a third of our MPs um, are women. So have we gone too far? I don't think so. Um, should, should women be able to be mothers? Absolutely. Stay-at-home stay mothers, absolutely, but so should men be able to be stay-at-home dads. Duncan wanted to contribute to the answer as well. Yeah, I think this is a tricky... You raise a tricky issue, I, and I accept that it's tricky. Um, I spoke about the idea of a community of care. That's a group of people who raise children. And that's psychologically very important to the child. I think when you, you pose the question, should mothers have the right to do that? Yes. But there are consequences, because whatever one person in the community of care chooses, it affects the choices that are available to the others. Okay? So if you, if you start the position that the mother has a primary choice and can decide what she wants to do without reference to anything else, then that's fine. But it has consequences. I think when you get into the idea of community of care, these, every choice that everybody makes, every choice the mother makes, has consequences. And is it her right to overrule the consequences for other people? That's, that's the question. Great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess I'm just sort of just conscious of this kind of binary conversation um, and, uh, around home and work and men and women. And I just wanted to kind of also talk about the idea of, uh, well, going back to what I said earlier about the patriarchy defines success. You know what I'm saying? You know, so that's where we have an issue. What is successful? How do you make successful choices? Mm -hmm. And so we can't. Just, I think we we got to get away from patriarchy and matriarchy in, as these kind of totemic kind of ideas of defining where how we actually live our lives. So the choices are choices which are human, regardless. So you know, if I'm a, if I want to have you know a, a child of my own without a, a female partner or a male partner. That's my choice. But the, the ways in which that success of that, that choice is defined, how it's supported, as Duncan's mentioned, how it's kind of, um, how it's kind of powered, as, as has also been mentioned, is still within a patriarchic system. You know? mm -hmm. So we need to move away from that. We need to move towards different models of what it is to be a successful human being and move through society and make our choices accordingly and be supported. 
So I guess the conclusion of our debate today is that uh, there's still a bit of work to, to be done in order to bridge the gender divide. I hope you've learned something useful here today. Uh, uh, I'm sure you have some questions left unanswered, but this is how we can still work towards a greater gender equality. Thank you very much for coming here. Thank you for this